Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude, and today I am so excited to bring on the show a woman that I have known for just a little while, but have come to really admire, and I'm totally fascinated by all the different things she is up to in the world, so I know that you will be too. Mary Stevens is a third-degree black belt and a martial arts instructor with 18 years experience in karate, weapons, and jujitsu. She holds a master's degree from Oxford University and a postgraduate certificate in education. She runs her own martial arts school called the Athena School of Karate, has written a series of children's books, and she works for an international charity called Fair Fight, which empowers young girls in developing countries using karate as a tool to develop confidence and self-determination. Mary is passionate about martial arts as a tool for confidence building and is a strong advocate for personal security education. Welcome to the show, Mary. Thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely amazing to be here. I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this for ages, and I'm so glad that we got it together. (laughs) Definitely. It's really great. I mean, as you say, we haven't really known each other all that long, but um, I've been really fortunate to benefit from uh, listening to your podcast and hearing you on other people's shows in my attempt to learn as much as I can, as quickly as I can about the world of self-defense and how it relates to women. So, because that's quite a new direction for me. So um, it's been really brilliant to benefit from your work in this area. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we're definitely going to talk about that because I want to learn all about your path. Before we dive into the nitty gritty stuff, I like to ask some different kinds of questions just to kind of get us warmed up and in the groove. So are you ready for that? Absolutely. Okay. When you were a child, if someone asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What did you say? Uh, So when I was younger, I used to say a vet because of loving animals, as, as I know you do too. And then when I got a little bit older and I realized quite how much science you had to study to be a vet, I used to say a lawyer because I, I thought that that suited my skill set. And under no circumstances could I possibly have seen myself as a karate instructor. So, you know, weird. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Was there anything else that you sort of dreamed about when you were young? Not in terms of career prospects, I don't think. But as I grew older and really began to learn more where my skills lay, I realized that I wanted to teach and that was very powerful and that I wanted to work with young people. That was really powerful too. So those are things that I sort of stumbled across just in the course of, you know, being a teenager, I guess. But yeah, I, I think for me, the most important thing was learning how to play to my strengths and recognizing what those are. Cause I mean, I would be a terrible lawyer. <laughs> I probably would very good at it either. <laughs> Why do you think you'd be a terrible lawyer? Because so much about law is kind of systematic 
And really, you know, I, I, I really, I've got lots of friends who are lawyers and I really like them. I like arguing with them because I like the way that their minds work, but I'm a bit too anarchic for that. I think you have to have a lot of respect for the law. That's been a problem for me in martial arts as well, is that I'm, I'm, I'm not very good at kind of, I love traditions, but I'm suspicious of traditions at the same time. And I think if you're going to be a lawyer, particularly maybe here in the UK, you really have to buy into that fully. And, I, and I'm not really sure that I could go there. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense to me. So what's the biggest thing that you've learned about yourself as a result of the pandemic? Oof. Well, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I think that a network of friends is really important. I mean, mean, that's something that I knew before already, but one of the things that's been absolutely amazing in the pandemic is the way that we as a martial arts community, particularly here in the UK, have dragged each other through. We've really tried to share good practice, support each other, play with ideas together, brainstorm, and, you know, comfort each other when it's been really, really tough. And just try to be creative together. So nobody, well, if anybody has just done their own thing and it's been amazing, they've not told anybody about it, I wouldn't know. But the group of people that I've worked with, we've all grown a lot closer together because we've trained together online and we've experimented with different ways of uh, keeping kids engaged. Because for those of us whose livelihood is children's martial arts, it's been quite a tough year. So trying to find ways of you know keeping people logging on and sustaining their motivation to train has been a real challenge and i think that's something that we as a community have learned that sharing and motivating each other has been far more important than focusing on ourselves oh wow that's pretty deep <laughs> isn't it yeah i mean it's not like it's a new lesson history's shown us that lesson again and again but sometimes, you know, you have to learn lessons for yourself, don't you? However much you know them in theory, it's when you really live it that you can find that experience. Yes. And the difference now is the role that technology plays. Absolutely. And it's been such a privilege. I mean, it's amazing to talk to you now and, you know, kind of going through the standard, all right, how are we doing for time zones? Because, you know, I've been able to train with and work with so many people all over the world because we've just been, okay, well, we're doing it on Zoom. So so I get to train with my students in India. I get to train with, you know, uh, Joe Saunders in Australia. He's been come to do stuff with my students in the network over here. Pam Armitage ran a, a trauma-informed workshop for our girls in Zimbabwe and in India, and we were trying to coordinate, okay, so what time would we have to have Canada and Harare and just trying to get, you know, something or so. So the people in India are doing it late at night and the people in Canada are doing it first thing in the morning and us in Europe are kind of doing it in the middle and in Africa and just all of that kind of stuff, which is a a very 2020, 2021 problem, but it's a blessing as well. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. I mean, what a challenge, but what an incredible Thing that you actually can make things like that happen and bring together people who literally are on opposite sides of the planet. Absolutely. And who, you know, it has taken away the reasons for people not to be able to share their best practice. And you, we don't have that any, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could, you know, have these, you know, if, wouldn't it be great if we could do X, Y, or Z? Was all, well, actually, if you think about it and you're open to the idea, we absolutely can. And, you know, that's been in the most extreme forms. The the young women that I do the soft skills training with 
in India, then we've, you know, they've been learning in the back of rickshaws. They've been, you know, on pork. I, I tell you, the times when you have, we're trying to do even like um, hard skills. So trying to teach getting up from the ground and that kind of thing. And one girl will hold her phone so that the other girl can see and I can see her and coach her and then they'll swap the phone over. And, and we're talking about, you know, tiny little houses in the villages in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, we're able to share technique training because there's a will to do it, you know, because people are not going to go, oh, no, that's too difficult. We can't think of a way around that. And, you know, and that's in translation as well. So you've, we've got, you know, I've got one person who's translating, who isn't a martial artist and two girls who are trying to learn, but haven't done this before. And so by the time you add in a fragile connection and no electricity sometimes and, and language difficulties and all the rest of that, you go, yeah, there's a lot of obstacles, but we can still get stuff done. And that's been a, a really important lesson of the pandemic for sure. What a powerful thing, though. You know, it's like no excuses, really. Like, come at me with your excuses and then let me tell you what we've been able to accomplish given some really huge obstacles and challenges that really would stop a lot of people. That's very true. And it's difficult sometimes not to overdo that. I don't know if when you were little and you wouldn't eat up all your dinner, maybe your parents might say to you, oh, you know, think about the starving children elsewhere in the world and you should have that. And and it's kind of like, I know that to be true, but I'm not them and that's not my context and, and so on. So and you just like, you begin to kind of resent that. And when I, I've had some real difficulties transitioning between doing some quite extreme problem solving in terms of maintaining that kind of connection. And then I switch to my own students who bless them are doing their best. And if they are like moaning that, oh, you know, I, I don't really feel like doing this or, and I'm just like, wow, you know, you have space, you have a steady Wi-Fi, you have your own device, which works. And, you know, don't turn down, don't turn away from the opportunities that this is presenting you just because you're feeling it. But, you know, if, if it's really, really, really important that I do continue to respect that the students here have had it tough as well and that it's been really difficult. We're moving back into face-to-face -face teaching next week. And I know that's going to be a, a really strange transition. Some students are going to love it. Some students are really fearful still and are going to struggle. And yeah, that. Our, our context isn't as extreme and it's important to kind of bear in mind that it's still extreme for them. That's right. And that's the thing is you only know what you know. You only know the environment that you're in and the context that you're in and what you don't know, you, you don't really even consider. You, you yes. just, it's not part of your awareness. It's not part of your world at all. Hmm. And uh, You just operate within that. And, and you as an instructor are doing a very delicate dance of straddling or, or actually living in two completely different worlds where the realities are very different. And I can see what a challenge it is you know, when you are coming up with such incredibly creative solutions and you're finding a way with the girls in India to still give them what they need and help them build the skills that are going to make such a big difference in their lives. You know, you're able to do that in an extraordinarily complex <laughs> and challenging environment. And yet then turning around and being, you know, with, with a group of English kids whose context is completely different, 
you know, where their challenges and their struggles are different. I can see how mentally tricky it would be to not just tell the, the English students, oh, come on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, whereas instead it turns into some kind of comedy sketch where even with my littlest ones and I'm I'm kind of like, no, George, how about we put the cushion back on the sofa? No, uh, yeah, no, 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 away from the cat. Good boy, good boy. Away from the cat. Fantastic. Great. Now let's try that stance again, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, you've got another one that's just building a den from everything in the front room because the mum's trying to supervise maths homework in a different place. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, the things that we have done this year. I can tell you about 15 drills that you can do with a sock. <laughs> oh, I want to know those. <laughs> one of my favorites is like, um, like particularly we sort of fold the sock in a particular way just so that it balances nicely if you're trying to balance it on your knee for front kicks or anything like that. But I love uh, like the sock karate chop. So you're going to put it on your hand and then do the chop and see if you can get it to fly in a straight line because then you've got a really good chop with the power going the right way. But I always have to do a kind of risk assessment around fish tanks. So it just, you know, I don't really want any and ornaments like because some people have got such nice houses with stuff that, you know, you really don't want to break. And so socks flying around the room is not always great. But yeah, that's been some fun kind of designing that kind of thing. Did you have a fish tank incident? No, I was just afraid there might be one because there's a couple of kids that, you know, sometimes we do show and tell and I've seen that we have you know, they'll be like, oh, we've got these new fish. And so I'm like, I really don't want those fish to end up with, you know, rolled up socks landing in, in, in right in the middle of them. That's probably not going to be good for the fish, right? I, I don't know very much about fish, but I, I figure that's probably contraindicated. Well, probably if they're clean socks, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of prefer not to find out though. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be dealing with those complaints either. But what a creative thing to do, though. I mean, the challenge of doing physical movement-based instruction over Zoom is a non-trivial challenge. And then doing that with children is an even bigger task. And so coming up with 15 ways to use a sock and drills, that, that's brilliant. I Like I said, you don't know what you don't know. So I did not know there were that many ways to use socks as as tools to teach. I hope that you'll never need to draw on that knowledge, but it's good to know that it's there. And I'm very happy if anybody needs to share that kind of thing, then, you know, we're, we're totally here for that. <laughs> That's really cool. Well, what is your sort of go-to self-care practice? So this is something that I'm not very good at, I have to say, because I, I'm usually very busy and I really benefit in this area. I really benefit from being single because I don't have a partner to annoy by constantly switching from one task to another. But I have to keep an eye on it because otherwise I'll just so for so the first thing I do is like. I'll rotate the different tasks. So I'll do something different because a change is as good as a rest, right? But I like to, when, when I'm really looking after myself and doing it properly, I, I, I like to go to the woods and practice my kata and all my weapons out there in the woods because, as you know, like being, being with trees is always very restoring and being in the fresh air is extremely good. And before the pandemic, that just was not something that I would do. And so to take that time, I kind of feel like I, I, I own that little clearing now. That's my space. And I really like to go there. And I think uh, I'll continue to do that. Oh, that's great. I think you may be familiar with Amy Stewart Cooper, who is one yeah. of the members of Rory Miller's 
community and she has a place near her restaurant that's on the banks of a river that she goes to to do her kata. So maybe the two of you at some point should get on Zoom in your special places and do kata together out in nature. Sometimes we have actually ended up practicing the same kata on the same day with our different weapons, which has been lovely. So yeah, Amy, somebody like yourself that I've only that I only internet know, and as another member of Five Hundred Rising, somebody that who I very much respect. And yes, it's it's really good to know she she is exactly the same as me when she's had that stressful day. She likes to get out there with her weapons and uh, freak out the birds. <laughs> well, it's funny because I now live up in the middle of nowhere in the middle of nature, and it hasn't occurred to me to go outside and do things kind of in the woods. I do have a little space. We put some stall mats from the horses out in my yard to form a little flat area that actually was supposed to be the dance floor when we got married. Mm-hmm. But I, I have gone out there and done practiced my forms and things out there because it's nice and smooth. But I think it would be really fun to go out and and do some things in the woods on the hills where the footing is uneven and you know there's light and shadow and balance is tricky. I think I think that's probably where I would go with it. It probably wouldn't be so much relaxation as it would be just kind of fun. Yeah, definitely. So there are, we had a couple of weeks ago the 100 kata challenge, the Kabuto challenge. And um, so I went to do my 100 kata uh, in the woods and I, I was doing like the um, 50 of one kata, 50 of another kata. So by the end, uh, even on the uneven grounds, um, having done it so many times, I was pretty sure of my bearings. So I decided to do um, the last um, repetitions blindfold. Um, and just really try and make it a sensory thing. So it was really interesting because there was um, the wind, there was quite a breeze. So I had the wind direction to help me and I had the sun coming from a specific direction. So like both the catas that I would were, was um, doing had very strong um, north, south, east, west kind of bearings. So it was more successful than when I've tried to do the same thing like in the dojo because there were so many more um, kind of natural markers. So that was interesting. So yeah, to, to, I would totally get that. Doing Using it as a chance to practice balance and that kind of thing is brilliant. It's interesting to me that this came up in talking about self-care because for some people it might not seem clear why doing Kata would be a form of self-care. And for those who don't know, kata or forms are sequences of choreographed martial art movements that initially were intended to mimic a fight. And so there's there are things that we we use, we learn step by step by step and practice over and over and over again. And the goal is really to get very, very good at the stances and the movement of the hands and changes of direction and all of that. So it makes sense to me that that would come up as self-care because when you're doing that, especially if you're doing something like you're talking about like doing it outside, you're just totally in the moment and in the flow of the movement mm. and worrying about you know, oh my gosh, this thing went so wrong on my previous call or, oh, I still need to sit down and write that post or, oh, I got to respond to that email. I mean, all of that stuff just has to fade away because you're so in the flow of the movement of the kata. Exactly. I'm glad that you said flow. I feel that um, very strongly. And it's um, one of the 
great things about Kata in that way is that um, it's inherently empowering as well as having that sense of calm, of repetition and flow. So repetitive things, you know, we naturally find soothing. And so something that's repetitive and powerful um, and it really helps you to focus on your breath as well. There's a kata that I learned specifically from um, for the lockdown, which I, uh, is not a kata from our system, but um, my friend Les, who runs um, Karate for Mental Health here in the UK, uh, he posted himself doing Tensho kata. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No, I'm not. Oh, it's, it was just so beautiful. Um, it was really kind of um, strong, but meditative. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, the hand movements were so um, aesthetic. I was like, I would really like to learn that, Catherine. He helped me to learn it. Um, and um, then luckily for me, I have a karate friend not far from here who also likes to come and train in the woods. Um, and it's the kata is a, a big kata in his system. So he was able to help me with it as well. And um now I kind of, I, so I introduced it to my students as well, just because it's such a soothing um, way to um, kind of respond to what's going on. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you that there's something very um, specifically beneficial um, about um, practicing kata in that way. Oh, that's neat. I would love to learn that form and, and see you know, where I could actually benefit from just having that experience too. I, I would love to learn that. So I'll have to hit you up after we're done and see if I can find a recording of it or something that I can learn from. Cause of course I, I don't have anybody to practice anything with up here. So no, for sure. Well, I'd be more than happy to help you with that. Oh, that'd be great. Well, what advice would you give young women today that you wish that you'd been given when you were in your twenties? So this is a really interesting and really, really important question. Um, I spend a lot of time working with teenagers. Um, so women in their twenties, definitely too. I mean, a lot of the, um, the Indian women that I work with are, are in their twenties as well. And I think it's so important for women to learn who they are so that they can then really work to their potential and so that they can like identify their strengths and identify their weaknesses so that they can figure out how to interact successfully with the world, taking those things into consideration. Because one of the things that I stand against very strongly is women being manipulated and abused. And that often only becomes possible if the way that they interact with the world um, takes away some of their sovereignty. So for me, um, for women in their 20s, I would say learn self-protection, study self-protection, figure out um, how you relate to that um, and how you can protect yourself because self-protection isn't just about self-protection. It's about actualization. Oh, that's great. And you're right. If you do things when you're young to learn more about yourself, then it makes how you interact with the world less of an accident if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the things that you would suggest other than taking a self-protection class that women could do so that they can learn those things about themselves, what their strengths and weaknesses are? Read a lot of psychology and really analyze their interactions and emotions. So look at where they feel successful and see what they can clone from that and look at where they feel 
less successful and see how they can draw those lessons out and experiment with those. That's one of the reasons I especially like working with teenagers is because they've got so much space to experiment um, and a remit to get it wrong because we all expect teenagers to get things wrong and they kind of should because that's how they're going to learn. Um, so, you know, without going too crazy, it's important to experiment with your limits so that you can figure out, you know, getting out of your comfort zone, obviously such an important thing, um, but everybody's comfort zone is, is different. So when I'm working with my own students, then it's really trying to help them set um, achievable stretch goals uh, so that, and, and then you learn how to break those down and also learn how to be kind to themselves, because that's one of the things that, you know, t students tend to go either, either they don't push themselves hard enough or they push themselves too hard. It's fine. You know, you rarely have somebody that gets that balance just right. Um, so learning to be um, tolerant of your failures is very, very important. Oh, that's great. Great. I'm glad I asked for a little bit more insight there because that's really valuable. What is the most difficult decision you've ever had to make and what was your process for making it? And that was one a question that I've heard you ask other people and I kind of shied away from it. And I don't like to admit that um, because that's such a difficult question. Um, and it, it made me reflect on different types of decision. Uh, this is kind of uh, evasive, I know. So um, I, I will try and step up and answer the question also. But like, it made me think about um, decisions that you make in the moment, which I think my, my process for that, if it's an emergency decision, then I try and go with my gut instinct. Um, and if it's a decision that needs to be made over time, then I tend to be very logical. I compile evidence. I write things down. I make a pro-con list. Um, and I really, um, I mean, I, I massively overthink it, but in a, in a very structured kind of way. One of the things that, so I, I've been through some fairly tough times and there have been some very difficult decisions um, through that, um, you know, made in crisis um, that will kind of really tear at you. And um, that's hard to reflect on, but I think it's really important to do that. And when we talked about, you know, content for today's podcast and things that I felt that it was really important to be upfront um, and say that, you know, I have been in a long-term abusive relationship and that um, despite all my, you know, supportive family and fabulous academic credentials and all of that kind of nonsense, you know, it's possible for any woman to get herself into a situation where she's fully isolated, um, where she no longer really trusts who she is. And that then making decisions becomes incredibly difficult because you just, your everything that you have in your heart can then be at odds. So making decisions from your gut can be really, really difficult. Uh, so I once, let's go with this one. I once had to call the police uh, on my partner who had, he was in a, in a very disturbed state and was, had been drinking and was not supposed to be driving even if he hadn't been drinking. Um, and he had taken my car keys. He took my phone actually as well, but he, and he pulled the, we still had a landline at that point, pulled the, pulled the landline wires out of the wall so that I couldn't um, use that. And then, but he threw back my phone as he left. 
Um, and yeah, so making the decision to call the police on somebody that you love that's in crisis, that might have been, I don't know, that might be the hardest decision. That kind of feels like that was a very hard decision to make. What was the hardest part of the decision? Was it just knowing that by making that call, he was going to end up quote in trouble and that there would be consequences that um, you couldn't really control at that point? Like once you made the call, it was out of your hands. What was going to happen? That was definitely part of it. I think really though, you know, uh, because I was so much still embroiled in that and hopeful that we would be able to make everything okay, which was naive. It was the betrayal that was the hardest thing for me in that decision that I couldn't, I, I had to step outside of the relationship for not just for his own good, but for the safety of other people as well. And that felt really bad. That felt very disloyal. And like I was really poisoning poisoning the relationship by doing that. Mm -hmm. I can see, I can see that really clearly. And I'm sorry that you went through that kind of a relationship. I know that when you're in that, it's sometimes even hard to recognize that that is what you're in until eventually you're out. Absolutely. And that's something that, um, you know, when we're thinking about advice and stuff that we would tell other people as you know, it took me years and years and years to extricate myself um, and to allow myself to be me properly. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I went through a couple of years of therapy, which was fantastically useful, and I definitely recommend that to anybody. But um, it's seeing the pattern because for any woman, and there, there will be women that listen to this that are in that kind of relationship and, and aren't ready to leave. They, even though maybe their friends have said, I can't believe you keep going back to him. Even maybe they've, uh, they've lost contact with the people that cared about them because the people give up on you. They give up on you when you're in that kind of situation. But for those women, I think to know that they can trust themselves again and that they should maybe, again, I, I love to, to make notes, just keep writing it down, write down the incidents, because then when you look at it as a whole picture, instead of what happened on that day, it really helps you to understand, you know, because when you're being gaslit, you, you lose perspective and you, you don't, you, you kind of like, did that just happen? I don't even know. How, and you kind of like, you forget how you felt. So writing down what, the things that happened and how that made you feel can be a really important tool for seeing the bigger picture and making the strong and difficult decisions that you need to step away. Mm -hmm. That's great, great advice. I actually just had a conversation with somebody who was in a group at work where the entire group was basically being gaslit mm. by people in the company. And that was the first thing I said was start documenting everything, like write it all down. And it, it was funny because the minute I said, you guys are being gaslit, she was like, oh, we are. Yes, yes. we are. <laughs> and uh, it's so, when somebody sees that and communicates that, it's so, oh, it's just su such an incredible relief. I'm really glad that you did that for them. I, I mean, it's a whole group, you know, a whole group of people. So it's something that can affect not just somebody one on one, but it can be within an organization too. I'm curious 
was there any particular thing that was the trigger for you changing your situation and making that decision to get out of it? I think it was um, several, again, looking at the note-taking, several incidents over a long period of time. And, you know, people say it when they've had too much to drink, don't they? It's like, well, I'm never going to drink again. And But then that, as they distance themselves from that incident, um, that they they then go back to it. Um, and I feel for, for me, it, I guess... It just took me such a long time, Cynthia, such a long time. So there was no shortage of incidents to catalogue. And learning more about self-protection was really important because, you know, I looked at my, your Gavin De Becker and your the pre-incident indicators and the tools of deception and all of those things. And I was like, oh, wow, this is a little bit too relevant. Um, and so having a clearer understanding of how manipulation works, that was important in allowing myself to step away. But also, yeah, therapy was important because having the confidence to to trust myself and to know that, that I was allowed to have my own emotions and um, that I was kind of, I didn't have to second guess everything that I did and try and put a, you know, well, I see it like this, but it's possible that I'm completely wrong about everything. And so I should also consider it from that point of view. Um, I mean, we all need to do that. We all need to check and not kind of run away with ourselves as being the only view that counts, but you kind of need some of that in order to function. So it was a collection of different things all added together and it, and it took time. Mm -hmm. As a woman and as a mother of daughters, I know that life can feel pretty damn scary and with good reason. Whether you've experienced violence before or you're just aware that it's out there and it stops you from moving freely around this world, you're not alone. The numbers are not pretty. It's estimated that 35% of women worldwide have experienced either physical or sexual intimate partner violence or violence by a non-partner. The National Crime Victimization Survey reported that more than 600 women in the U.S. are raped or sexually assaulted every day. But I want you to know that you don't have to live in fear. You and your daughter can and deserve to navigate this world feeling confident, prepared, and most of all, completely capable of taking care of yourself and your loved ones. Because you were born ready. When you learn how to recognize and use the self-protection tools that you were born with, your innate built-in self-defense system, you can keep yourself safe. And I can show you how to do that. In my new program, Born Ready, the three life-saving self-defense tools for empowered women, you will get a quick, powerful introduction to key self-defense concepts and tools to jumpstart your safety. Here's just a bit of what you'll cover. The first module is all about your amazing body, how your body and brain are designed to protect you. You landed on the planet well-equipped to keep yourself safe. And yeah, we've been domesticated, but this is where you will learn how to get in touch with your built-in protection system. 
Module 2 is all about nonviolent postures. Now, most assaults do not start out of the blue with violence. They start with an interaction between two or more people that goes down the wrong path. So in this module, you discover how to stop a situation from becoming unsafe and how to keep yourself safe if it does go violent. Module three is tools and targets. It's all about how to use your human weapon tools to fight if you should ever become the victim of a true ambush, somebody attacking you with no warning, or if you become involved in a confrontation that turns violent. This is exactly what you need to lay the foundation for your personal safety so that you can begin navigating the world with confidence. This course is an investment in your safety and in the safety of your children and loved ones. It's an investment with an invaluable return, personal power, confidence, and safety. If you are interested in learning what can save your life, please click the link in the show notes or go to www.cynthiajolikerud.com slash born ready to find out how you can enroll in the born ready course. I'm offering it to podcast listeners for just $97. If you enroll using the coupon code podcast, you can make this investment with absolutely no risk because you are covered by my 100% money back guarantee. If within a week of enrolling in the course, you don't feel uplifted, encouraged, and empowered to keep yourself safe, then just send me an email and I'll send you a refund. You and I both know that every woman is born to be a badass. We all have innate power and abilities, but we often don't know that they're there or we don't know how to unleash them. So enroll in Born Ready to feel ready, to be confident, and to live with the freedom that you deserve. It's interesting that you you bring up how important it was to start to learn to recognize the manipulations and to recognize what you were doing kind of to accommodate them. Mm-hmm. Because my daughters and I are working on a book together that is for teen girls and their moms. And one of the most important things, I think, at least when I work with teens and then talking with my daughters about their experience as young women, because they're both in their 20s now, it's just been that we don't educate young women or young men about what abusers and creeps and predators do. Mm -hmm. We don't educate them on DeBecker's survival signals. We don't educate them on how the manipulations and the gaslighting actually happen and how grooming happens and things like that, which is why they end up like you in a situation where you're in it Mm -hmm. and don't really realize that you're in it and can't see that it's happening until something else kind of shines the light or there's sort of a wake up moment where you start to realize, oh, hang on a minute. I'm actually not crazy. (laughs) Yeah, that's really difficult to get your head around. I loved the pod that you did about um, teenage girls. Um, And that was obviously because was that back at the beginning of last year? Um, It really, I mean, because that's such a an area of passion for me working with teenagers and it's something that I'm really planning to to get more into here we've had a lot more schools interested in trying to incorporate it into the curriculum and with my background in school teaching um it's something that I know is sadly lacking in uh, high school education here 
And it would be so good to really develop a strong program that will help all of you know, girls and boys to recognize the way that they interact with each other and how to really how to manage those interactions in a way that doesn't set them up to be abused that allows them to being in relationships that still allow them to be themselves yeah yeah to be in a healthy relationship mm. yeah yes that's awesome well i'd like to go a little bit into how you got into martial arts how did you get there i know that you grew up on a tiny little island off the coast of england um, yes. Did you start martial arts while you were there, or yeah. how did that all happen? So, no, famously, I um, I uh, didn't. Uh, not famously, that is. It was just that it's a story that I tell a lot because it, it still makes me laugh. Um, my, I'm, I'm like six foot tall um, and built like, yeah. It would take a lot of wind to blow me over, um, and um, so. But my parents made me do ballet. Oh boy. Um, yeah, because that was what young ladies do, right? It's uh, good for grace um, and uh, it's good for poise and 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 so on, deportment. Yeah, that was that was kind of tough. Um, I and but I loved and was fascinated by um, karate. But uh, there was posters up for karate in in the sports center, and I'd be like, "Wow, look at that!" Sort of when we're talking about the late seventies, so it was nothing more than a a, a, a silhouette. Um, hand-drawn a, a, a guy kicking wow how cool is that I was always um very um enamored of the aesthetic but it, it didn't um it wasn't okay because you know karate was for boys and that wasn't um something that i was allowed to do um but i so i only really came to it much later when my own son was being bullied at school when he was young and um i decided that um it would be good for him to learn a martial art um to help him we um, will not necessarily physically defend himself, but so that he would be less of a target. So what kind of a school did he enroll in? So um, that was when I, I enrolled him into, uh, I did because I didn't really mind what which martial art he did, but um, that but as it happened, I enrolled him in, into a karate school because I liked the approach of uh, teaching it in terms of life coaching. Um, and the, the kind of a, a holistic approach, which wasn't just about, um, you know, we're going to teach punching, we're going to teach kicking, but we're going to really uh, look at it as a journey of self-development. So I loved it. And I, I, I decided that I was going to start um, myself then. Um, and so, I, so I'm now, well, I'll be 50 this year and I was 30 then. So I've, I've now, I will have been doing it for, for 20 years by the time I get to the end of this year, which is long enough now. I discover when I'm making new contacts in the world of karate, that's long enough for people to be respectful. Whereas, you know, I've spent a lot of time in martial arts where people are just like, oh, you know, you you, they don't want to take you seriously, partly because you're female and partly because you didn't study it back in, you know, way back in the day when it first arrived and everybody was breaking their joints and breaking boards and, you know, all the kind of when, when, when it first came to the UK and so on. So I think we're kind of past that now, which is nice. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you and I have a very similar story about how we got into it because my oldest son, he wasn't being bullied, but when he was four, almost five, he just was a little whirlwind of energy. 
and couldn't kind of reel it back in. <laughs> so it just kind of, he would just like, woof, and all this energy would go out and it'd be like, come back, <laughs> calm down, settle down. And I thought, you know, it'd be nice if he had somewhere where he could yell and hit things and, you know, and his dad enrolled him at the little school that was around the corner from our house. And unbeknownst to us, it was part of a larger association run by Ernie Reyes, Quadrant Ernie Reyes, who's amazing. Mm-hmm. But this little school was run by a woman and it was a great environment. She was very community oriented. And he started there and I sat watching on the benches. I was very pregnant at the time with my third child. So I just sat and watched him and it was cool to watch. And I knew that I was fortunate to be able to take a sabbatical from my job at Apple and combine that with family leave once I had my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I thought that there was a possibility I wouldn't be going back to work after my daughter was born. And so there's this little thought in the back of my head that was, well, maybe I could do this because if I'm not going to work every day, I'm going to need something where I feel like I'm accomplishing something and I'm going to need to be around grownups as opposed to, you know, if I'm a stay-at-home mom with three kids that are under five, it'd be nice to have some grownups to talk to. And that's ultimately what happened was I had Katie, I, I stayed home on that leave for a while. And then we were lucky that I, I didn't have to go back to work. So I was like, okay, I'm signing up. And I signed up actually when Katie was three weeks old and started as a white belt and she just turned 25. Um, cool. in January. So, uh, and I, you know, stopped and started along the way and went through fourth degree through that association of schools. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's funny how I think a lot of women get into it because they have a child that they enroll into a school and then they're like, well, you know, that's pretty cool. I could do that. And then does your son still practice or was that a temporary short-term thing for him? So he went as far as um, second Q. So um, he he studied it for for a long time. It was never really him, but he did it because, you know, because I was doing it and, you know, I was teaching as well by then. Um, And, because it was good for him. But um, I always feel very strongly that um, you can you can bring a child to brown belt, but anybody that wants to make black belt has to make that decision for themselves. So my daughter does love martial arts and she um, continued through and yeah, she's, she's a black belt um, and has studied, you know, a range of different arts and, and in, in lots of ways, she's like her weaponry skills are way beyond mine. She's amazing with the bow stuff, which is really cool. And she loves studying self-protection education as well. So, um, so for her, it's definitely, um, been part of her identity, um, for my son less so, but that's okay. It just, you know, it, it, it isn't for everybody. Um, but I think it was useful for him what he did. Yeah. My older two both enrolled. My younger daughter sort of conned me into letting her take a intro class. And I was hoping mm-hmm. they say she was too young because she was only three, but they didn't. They said she was doing great and she should join the class. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they both actually went through first degree, but it wasn't really their thing. And so he went off and got into hockey and baseball and things like that. And she was an equestrian like I was and later got into ballroom dance. But the thing that I realized was that being involved in martial arts as youngsters gave them two or well, gave them a lot, but two or three really significant things. I mean, one was just 
they were in their bodies, knew their bodies, they could move their bodies. They had that sense of balance and the proprioception of what is where. <laughs> and that that was huge and translated to everything else that they later took on, as did the ability to be coached. The fact that they had been in these classes since they were little and they were getting positive feedback, they were getting corrections, they were improving and they were getting tangible recognition as they mastered things. You know, it made them both very coachable people. Mm. And so that translated into other things that they did. And then the the third piece, which I actually I'd like to hear your thoughts on is just the the whole mental and emotional development that goes along because everybody, a, a lot of parents enroll their kids in martial arts classes because they want them to develop discipline. Yes. Which, which you do, but I think there's a lot more developed than just that. And I certainly saw that in my kids. And I'm, I'm curious as a mom who had kids who went through a martial arts path and, and now as a teacher who teaches young children, like what do you think that martial arts does for kids? It does everything for kids and, um, and for adults too. Um, and I, I say that that sounds like a, a, a platitude, but it's really, really not. I mean, having taught so many different things in my life, I, one of my really big journeys was coming back out of the classroom, teaching English, which is an important thing to teach when like one of the main priority subjects in the curriculum and realizing there was so much more purpose for me in teaching martial arts, because if somebody can learn to deal with themselves through martial arts, they, as you exactly as what you're saying on your second point, a good martial artist is a good learner in all different environments. So if you are resilient and take feedback and are confident in your power and good at working with other people, because there's so many opportunities to work um, in teams and, and but also to develop your leadership skills. You know, there's there's just so much that you can do when I'm talking about um, advising young women to learn their strengths and their weaknesses. Well, that is just the perfect place to do that. Because you you can it has that holistic way of well okay well am I coordinated or am I strong am I am I, am I a good listener uh, there's just so many different ways that you can be yourself in martial arts and work on the areas that you want to develop so um, yes children should definitely do martial arts and um, yes they will learn discipline I, I read a very funny thing yesterday where um a badly behaved child was being brought to the dojo and um the instructor saying to the parent um so what, what do you want your child to learn in my martial arts class and the parents like oh, he really needs some discipline and then the martial arts instructor looks at the kid and goes mm -mm. all right you take that child home and then you come Back, I'll teach you the plan, and then you can go back and teach your kid because you've signed him off on that, you know. And I think that, uh, that that's it's kind of funny, but working with parents is a really important part of what I do, um, so that we triangulate for the benefit of the child and really try and help um, think about how what we do in the dojo applies outside of the dojo as well. So, what do you think the most important? things are that a child, for example, under 10 should know and be able to do? 
Okay. Well, in in terms of life or in terms of martial arts? Both. 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 Okay. So so I, I, I divide mine up as a kind of under sevens and then up to around 12-ish and then the older teens. So um, in that under 10 category, um, a lot of it is to do with emotional self-regulation. Um, so kids will uh, so some of it is kind of game based and they will learn how to lose uh they will learn how to win nicely uh they will learn um how to how and when to stop another child from invading their personal space so learning how to say don't push me but learning how to say ah, that's my toy was just really talking about with the very little ones here mm-hmm. and learning how to negotiate those are things that we actively teach and all of which martial arts can be used as a vehicle for that and then as they get older then it's really so sort of seven through to so we're talking about what you were saying about under tens um learning how to recognize the way that their behavior affects other people so um thinking about themselves um you know if they're constantly in trouble for something you know, often this is the age when parents will come to me and they'll say, he won't listen to me, but can you say something about um, you know, online game behavior? Or can you say something about um, never um, doing what he's told until it's you know almost too late? So I have a lot of conversations with, with kids that are about you know, good habits at home and that kind of thing, just because it's part of the system. So it's really good for under tense to think about um, how their daily behaviors set them up for a happier day. Um, you know, if you get your book bag ready when you're told to, if you brush your teeth at first time of asking, uh, and it, it all just makes for, um, <laughs> I, uh, they, they like this. We talk about an atmosphere of uh, unicorns and fairies instead of grumbliness and I didn't, you didn't, uh, nah, 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 um, it being in the air. And so like trying to teach them from an early stage that um, the parents are trying to get them to do things for a reason. Uh, and it's usually for their own benefit ultimately, but seeing that bigger picture is important. Well, that's really cool. So now I want to know what you work with the older kids on, because I love what you're doing with the younger ones. So the older kids, it's very much about that kind of self-actualization focus, because one thing that frustrates teenagers more than anything else is being treated like a kid. Um, And one of the main things that I teach my teens is if you don't want to be treated like a kid, then you have to show that you can be trusted. And so there is no shortcut for that. You have to do what you say you are going to do. Uh, You have to show up. You have to keep your phone uh, like you have to answer messages and you have to um, explain when things, things will sometimes go wrong. So you need to own that and explain what happened so that your parents can learn how to trust you. Because if you want more responsibility, then that is something that you have to, it's not just going to come to you and it's no good whinging about it. If you, if you don't show that you deserve your parents' trust, then they will continue to treat you like a child. And then like so with my leadership group um we've just had a really so again trying to spin what's the benefit of being on zoom um 
we would never normally give over as much dojo time to um, theoretical leadership skills. But um, I had a group that decided to, so we worked on putting that course to a, uh, an online weekly meeting group. And I've just had the most amazing set of essays come back in from that group about what they've learned um, from reflecting on um, purpose and role models and um, the psychology of how to deal with parents. Because if a teenager can learn how to react to parents in a mature way, um, then it's easier for the parents to accept them as the adult that they're becoming. So that's kind of the focus of what I do with teens. Oh, wow. That is awesome. That is so cool. And the way that all of that, it, that's the mindset, it's the mental and emotional aspect. And it just sets up, you know, the practice of martial arts to be something that is not separate from normal life. Mm. And it also just really sets the stage well for learning self-protection. Agree. And that's really been such an important development for me in un trying to understand how being a traditional karateka, but also teaching up-to-date self-protection can go together and that there doesn't have to be a conflict between the two. Um, because in a way, and this is really, I was thinking about this conversation that we were going to have. And I woke up in the middle of the night one night and I thought to myself, wow, in some ways I teach karate as soft skills which it just is a bit of a, you know, wow, that would really offend a lot of karate people who kind of like to punch things really, really hard and uh, would fancy themselves as being a badass. But, but you know, we absolutely, being the best badass is not having to fight at all, right? That's the, the you know, you win all the fights that you, that you don't have to actually do. So, yeah, I think, I think that's it. I think fundamentally, although I do teach a lot of physical skills and I love to teach, you know, a whole range of relevant self-protection skills, don't get me wrong, that's a, that is an important part of the program. But, you know, we've all, we, we, we know and accept that the majority of self-protection, personal safety is de-escalation and soft skills and good decision-making and situational awareness and so yeah, I'm absolutely teaching all of that to kids right from right from the age of four upwards. Uh, then they're already learning. Uh, it's really cute watching seven-year-olds doing a kind of a threat assessment triangle because they love to do it in a in a cartoon theory kind of way. So you know, we, we talk about um, assessing threat as as being. Um, about uh, accessibility, capability, and intent, and you know they like to think about a, a real supervillain that is uh, imprisoned on the moon. So although he might have like uh, in, you know, intent and uh, and capability, he doesn't have accessibility. And just like there's so many different ways that self protection concepts will still work for younger children. Um, and then by the time they really need them, when they're teenagers, my objective is to send kids off to university as good students with the discipline to study properly, um, with the confidence to be themselves in their friendship group, um, and a good range of solid street self-protection skills that mean that when they're out and about with their friends in that university environment, that they're going to be okay. Oh, I love it. it. Just I'm sitting here just grinning from ear to ear because I am so all in for what you do. I wish that I lived in England again because I would be on your doorstep and I just love what you're doing. It's awesome. 
I was so fascinated when I saw in your biography that you spent some time in Plymouth. What on earth were you doing in Plymouth? So my mother was actually a World War II war bride and she, her family was from the north of England up in Lancashire, but one of her sisters settled in Plymouth. And so when I was 11 was when we went back there, she, she got very homesick. My mother did because Oklahoma is a long way from the north of England. And so she tried to go home fairly frequently. And this particular time we, we landed there for two years. So from 11 to 13, um, she wanted to be in Plymouth because it was close to one of her two sisters. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the lucky kid that got to go along because I was the youngest. And um, so I went to grammar school at Plimpton Grammar School before it became a comprehensive. Amazing. Yeah, that was how I ended up in Plymouth. <laughs> and how did that affect you spending two years in such a completely different environment? Well, it's funny. I recently wrote a story on StoryWorth that was about all the different places I'd lived. And it was, I think it ended up being like 56 pages. It was a lot because I've lived a lot of different places. So not just in Plymouth. And the weird thing for me was to live abroad. And it was Plymouth. It was, I lived in the North of England for a while. We lived in Nantes in France. We lived in India. So we lived a lot of different places. And every time we would go back to Stillwater, Oklahoma, which was very different. And none of my peers and classmates really had traveled like that. Mm -hmm. So the weird thing for me was that we would go live somewhere else and I would completely transform into as close to a native as I could and just be immersed and then we'd go back. And so there was a point, for example, when we lived in the North of England that in Lancashire, they dropped their H's. So mm -hmm. Uh, I, I learned how to do that too. My dad came to visit and I was like, you know, daddy, old me and, and he was horrified. <laughs> and I, I was like that the whole time we lived there. And then on the plane flight back, I just dropped all of that and started being Oklahoma Cynthia again. So, you know, in answer to your question, I think I just adapted. I learned how to be adaptable. Yeah, yeah. that's an amazing lesson to learn. That really reminds me of, so my, um, I'm half Irish and my, my grandmother, I used to love listening to her stories about when she was young and she and her three sisters were sent um, to school in England. And in those days, because my grandmother was born in um, 1901. So uh, as a school child, they were sent over on the boat and they were sent over for the whole year. You'd be sent at the beginning of the year. You'd come back at the end of the school year. And uh, she said that she used to, her, her older sister would say to them on the boat on the way back, you better lose it. Put, put, you know, put your English accent overboard right now because we're really going to get teased when we get home. And that that was what they did, that they would, uh, yeah, exactly like, like you were talking about on the plane, morph into being Irish again from having been, been English. It's, it's, it's that's another form of self-protection, isn't it? It is. And, and I think it's just, it's the element, it's what Rory talks about, you know, in the human need to be part of a group. Yes. And I think we, we just, if we go somewhere else, just assimilate. And I think that a lot of trouble happens when you don't do that. Well, as a very tall white woman spending quite a lot of time working in India, 
I can tell you that it's quite difficult to be a chameleon in that environment. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, I, I completely, and, and I wish I could, I wish I could, but I can't. So I kind of have to accept that as it yeah. is. Oh, that's funny because when I was nine was when we lived in India. And when I was nine, I was platinum blonde. So platinum wow. blonde hair, blue eyes. And back in that day, the bicycles had banana seats and very high handlebars. Mm. And so I took my bike with us. And so I would ride around on the, the streets of Ludiana in this banana seat bike with my blonde hair flying behind me. And I was very much not a little Indian girl. Definitely. When I um, with with my own daughter um, visiting a temple in um, Sarnath in in um, Uttar Pradesh, it was quite. Uh, she, so she's incredibly pale. She's so pale she looks like the moon basically. And she we we had to like she drew a crowd, um, and we um, in the end had to kind of really start saying, no, you, you can't continue to take pictures of her. And they, people were being really quite invasive. And uh, they were like, Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey. <laughs> like, oh my God. We kind of had to make a swift exit because uh, it was getting ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so we always like to tease her about that, uh, her, her moon face drawing, drawing a crowd. Well, I think it is a good thing to go abroad and to be in a different culture. And especially in a culture where you don't look like the people who are native there. It's an experience that many people don't ever have. You know, we, we, you know, we grow up and live pretty much in the same kind of environment that we grow up in. And that experience of going into what is a completely different world and being in the minority and looking and sounding different and not speaking the language is something that can be really challenging, but it can be absolutely amazing too. Yeah, definitely. And very good as a learning curve. Uh, and one of the things that you ask um, your um, guests to reflect on is ways in which martial arts have affected them in their life outside of that. And, you know, I was thinking about that first time when I went to India, which was really terrifying. And just there were complications and the person who was supposed to pick us up at the airport couldn't pick us up at the airport. So we had to myself and uh, another girl also who had never traveled there um, had to get into a taxi with somebody that just held up a, um, a piece of paper that said fair fight. So that was like, he had no English and, and we had no Hindi. Um, and so we just had to kind of, we, and we had no phone connection. Um, so when you first land there, the, the, it took me a really long time for my phone to come to connect to anything. Um, so that was really scary. I was 5,000 miles away from home um, in a car in a, a completely alien environment because, I mean, you know what India's like. It was like, again, coming back to Rory's stuff about sensory, um, it, it, I didn't know what was a threat and what wasn't a threat. There were animals all over the road. There were, you know, just, it was just monumentally intense. And um, I had nobody to call on uh, and, uh, you know, we were just completely at the mercy of the guy driving the car, which was a two hour car journey. So that was something else. So just trying to kind of stay grounded and not show the other girl quite how stressful I was finding it, just kind of reassuring and noticing things and pointing things out and just being like, all right, let's just keep an objective head on your shoulders at this point. 
that was uh, definitely, I felt that I was really drawing on my martial arts experience in, in that car ride, I can tell you. <laughs> I'll bet. I, I will say that what you did is not in our list of recommended ways to travel. So much, I know, right? <laughs> Everything was just like, there were so many things that were just like, and there's been quite a few times in my life that that, that situation has occurred. And it really shouldn't, you know, it's a bit like uh, um, the thing about, oh, this guy's been fighting 300 street fights. And you're just like, well, why do 300 people want to kill you? It's like, well, you have to look for the patterns and go, okay, so what, what, why have you a few times in your life put yourself in a situation that you would never want somebody that you cared about to be in, you know, and, you know, you know what you know, but then you're just like, okay, how do you then mitigate in those circumstances? It's all about the mitigation, isn't it? So yeah, that's um, and one of the things. So, and I learned from that experience, I've had the offer of a satellite phone next time that I go, which is good. And also I have taken it upon myself to learn the language properly. So I'm studying Hindi really, really hard. And that's going to make a big difference to my um, safety and my understanding of the environment next time I go. Oh, very good. Well, since we're in India, I'd like to know how you got involved with Fair Fight. Like, what is Fair Fight and how did you get involved and what are you doing exactly? Oh, right. Okay. I'll, well, I'll try and be as succinct as possible because this is one of my favorite subjects and I could talk for a very long time. I think it's uh, important to, to note that uh, we often do things because, because of our kids and you'll totally relate to this. It's another martial arts thing. When we had... Um, an email to, as a group of um, schools, we belong to a network and there was an email that came around on the network, which was um, a, a group called Fair Fight is looking for um, an instructor to, to go on project to India, working with um, vulnerable young girls um, who are living in a safe house. And the project is about uh, teaching karate and they specifically want somebody uh, to help develop the kind of life skills elements of the, so to take the karate beyond um, the actual um, practice of karate to ensure that they're really getting the full martial arts benefits. Um, so it was a, it was a teach the teachers kind of appeal. Um, and I read it and I was like, wow, do you know what teaching karate to vulnerable girls um, in that situation is so brilliant because I've no doubt that that will be really, really effective and, and cool. And uh, somebody should definitely do that. That's a great thing for somebody to do. That's a brilliant project for someone to get involved with. Um, and I read it out to my daughter and she's like, can you even hear yourself? <laughs> you know. <laughs> what's all this, you know, somebody should do that. And I'm like, oh, don't be silly, darling. You know, I'm a self-employed person. Uh, you have your A-levels coming up, you know, you know, it's all, and she's just like, nah, 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 that's not, that's not how we do things. We, we're like, you know, we try and be solution oriented. So, so the dates don't work. Uh, so um, I have exams. So, you know, all of this, that, and the other, but that is something that you could do. And I was reading it and feeling, yeah, that is something that I could do. And as soon as you get to that point, you think, okay, well then I, if I can do it, then I, I should do it. So we problem solved um, until I could do it. And um, so the first time I, I just went as a, like a, as a consultant to try and work on the instructors um, kind of broader instructing skills. Um, and then from there I took over as project manager and now we've expanded the project. So um, because I'm so passionate about the role of self-protection, 
although our um, we do um, have some great progress in the girls that have been learning karate. Um, I also work with um, other girls who are specifically working on self-protection teaching um, and um, and other schools as well. And so it's so frustrating um, being held up where we are for now. But um, n- next time that I go back, I have three different um, projects that I'm going to be touching base with. Um, and one is about, um, uh, so access to education is, is problematic for, uh, Indian women anyway, and there's a high dropout rate because of the levels of harassment that they face once they get to university. So, um, there's one NGO that I, um, am connected to and, and we're planning to do a high school program for those girls so that they have some, a good level of self-protection skills before they go to university so that it will help them to and progress in their lives um, without that, um, you know, very high stress and dropout rate. And then um, obviously working with my karate girls, which I've been doing for, for a number of years. Um, and we've recently developed that project a little further to extend into other students whose, um, you know, whose parents have lost their livelihoods because of the pandemic and trying to support them in their martial arts education and beyond. Um, and we're hoping to to develop the project to the, to the level that we have in Zimbabwe, where they have brilliant mentorship scheme and um, where a lot of the students, the karate students are, are being mentored through university. Um, we had our first university graduate of the program um, just a few weeks ago, which is just amazing in Zim. And I'd love to see that happening in India as well. Oh, wow. Talk about planting seeds that bear fruit for a lifetime. Yeah, and there's so much um, kind of movement towards social change, um, and you know, India is the hardest place in the world to be a woman. Um, and some of the villages that we're talking about here, I mean, the 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 young women that run the self defense project, the stuff that they see and deal with on a day to day basis is just, it's really very hard for us to grasp, and the powerlessness of a woman who, you know, and it just constantly happens. Unfortunately, there's a gang rape culture, there's uh, acid attacks There's So, you know, just last autumn, a, a girl in the village near there was, um, it was set on and raped her tongue cut out so that she couldn't tell the story. And, um, they broke her neck. She, she died two weeks later, despite the fact that she'd identified her attackers, they still got away because, she was a low caste and there was no interest uh, or no motivation because her status within society wasn't sufficient that that was, you know, that that, that was something that the police were going to act on. And it's, you know, the society is very torn between those who are really promoting the rights of women and but they're really battling against a culture which says, you know, women aren't as important and uh, should be looking after children and staying in the home, which is the experience of most of the women. So we, uh, India has got some fantastic, you know, there's a lot of progress in the cities. There's some wonderful uh, women, women making amazing um, strides um, and really trailblazing. But the reality is out there in the villages, it's not happening enough. And the, the girls that I work with tell me that the basic level of fitness for uh, a woman on one of their self-defense programs is incredibly low because she walks to take the trash out. Other than that, she's in the kitchen and, and 
you know, she has children to care for, but you know, she doesn't even like the, the, the men go to market. She, she is in the home and that is what she does. So she, she cannot run. Um, and she cannot punch very hard. Um, it's actually one of the things that I've been talking about with Pam Armitage is ways of working around this so that women that attend their one day course can take something away from that, that will then allow them in their space. And again, thinking about it in terms of pandemic, we've all been working on what can be done in a small space that if they do, you know, sun salutations and dance in the kitchen and we teach a little bit of basic stand up, sit down. This could just kind of a few basic things to keep them moving in an empowering way that that could have more effect because we all know that a one day course where you do some knee strikes on a pad is, you know, it's, it's definitely better than nothing, but the, you know, there's so much more that we can do. And that's why it's been brilliant to focus on soft skills because we've had to over zoom, we've done a few um, physical skills, but really thinking about how, because Indian society grooms women to be abused. They have, they, you know, uh, they're taught to be um, passive and obedient. They're taught to be polite. They're taught to um, put their needs um, behind everybody else's. And so there's a massive head start for anybody that wants, that has evil intent. Um, one girl that died just before Christmas was a Muslim and she had been systematically targeted by this young man who threatened her consistently and her family had asked his family to get him to stop. They'd, they'd consulted police, but there was, there was no protection for her. She had nothing. And, you know, she was brutally raped and murdered. And you just think, okay, the girls that come to me and they say, well, you know, they have like, ask whatever you like, ask as many questions as you like. And they'll say things like, how do you escape when four men have grabbed you and, and, and tied you up? And obviously we go back to, I'm never victim blaming, obviously never, ever victim blaming. But when we go back along the timeline of that, one of the things that the girls and I have talked about is when a man first approaches you and tries to talk to you when you're taking the rubbish out, if you, you know, smile politely or turn away or try not to offend them, then you're already maybe giving cooperative signals, which are, are not going to help you. Whereas if you can develop the ability and, but also then the hard target stuff can, can enrage and cause problems. And then it's a pride thing, particularly as if, you know, if it's, a, if it's a group of men, then if you're too sassy, then they're going to put you in your place. So <laughs> we've been practicing saying, uh, I'm sorry if I seem impolite, I'm on my period. Um, or just other ways of being, you know, breaking the script, really being, um, being an, uh, an unappealing target in ways that work culturally in that, in that context. Right. Oh, it's such a narrow gap, you know, how do you devalue yourself as a potential target when the directions that you could go in? Have? <laughs> and it's so, that's why it's so important to get a good understanding of the cultural context, because what would be acceptable here is not the same as what would be acceptable there. Um, and, but, but increasingly, I know that the same is true between, you know, between here and in California, it's closer, but I think it's wrong ever to assume that it's going to be the same. 
And so really, for me, I'm kind of obsessed with examining cultural differences to figure out what would work in any particular situation under those dynamics, because ultimately, understanding the subtleties of what might be different between here and California will help me when I'm training young women in Uttar Pradesh or in Delhi, for example. And, you know, even in there between the city and in, in the village, there's such a big difference between the mentality of those two, that listening to women telling their story is so, so important. And allowing the girls that teach them to process what they hear and interpret that in a meaningful way as well is is also really, really important. Well, you also, you touched on something really important that kind of ding, ding, dinged in my brain, which is if people always come to us as self-defense coaches with, a, you know, what do I do in X situation? Mm-hmm. And I know that I am not alone in sometimes being a very frustrating person to talk to because I will say, well, it all depends on the scenario that, mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the things that coach Tony Blower laughs about a lot. It's like, well, what's the scenario? And, yeah. you know, what you are touching on is there is no one right answer to a particular situation. Mm-hmm. And that's where giving women and girls an understanding of what the options might be is greatly helpful, but also having them understand that they're not helpless, that their bodies have certain tools and that things like intuition and their awareness are the things that are going to show them what the options are in any particular situation. And so, you know, when you're saying like with, with one of the girls that you were talking about, it's like, well, what do you do in that situation? Well, you know, she knows kind of what, say, for example, the family environment is like, she knows what the dynamics are and who communicates with whom. And she knows what the patterns are and the history might be. And so she's the one who's going to be navigating through that. And when she gets that bad feeling like, oh, wow, this is, this is starting to feel like something that I've noticed before that. And then when she has worked with you guys and she's like, okay, well now I recognize that this is potentially not good, but it hasn't gone all the way down the road to the really, really bad thing yet. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So learning to trust those feelings is so important. And so learning that actually it's okay not to put your, uh, so to, to put those feelings front and center and, and exactly when you were saying ding, 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 this is like, this is where, uh, so I, I translated um, Debecca's uh, seven pre-incident indicators into Hindi um, to go through them with the girls and they're, it was really, really interesting because some of them, they absolutely were like, oh my God, that happens all the time. And then other other parts of it just, again, don't work as well in that Indian context because disregarding no, which I always consider to be one of the most important, um, doesn't work there at all because everybody in India disregards no. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and so it's very difficult for me as a project coordinator as well when I'm trying to get stuff done. So understanding that is something that I had to come to terms with fairly early on because you propose something to the team and um, they'll all agree. But you have to figure out are they agreeing in a way that means it's going to happen or are they agreeing in a way that means it's not going to happen because they're not going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so what you're pointing to is that context really does matter. Mm-hmm. Knowing what the norms are in a particular environment is essential. 
And that as an outsider, we can't define that. And that's where eliciting that and creating, helping these young women to awaken to their own awareness that they actually do know what's going on. They do recognize things. They do know what the rules are. They do know what the patterns are. Uh, And then helping them recognize, okay, when, when you start to recognize that this is, here's some of the options. And what do you think some of the options are? Because like you were saying, you know, being, uh, turning away with kind of a half smile and trying to basically be invisible. uh, Well, that might work for one person, but it might be a great, you know, oh yes, this is a great target indicator for another person, you know, versus being confrontational for one person and might be a trigger for a really bad scene with another person. So they're the ones that are going to have to make that decision and that choice in the moment based on what they know and what their, it's not even what their imaginations can come up with. Cause I imagine part of what you guys do is help them create mental blueprints for potential scenarios so that they at least have an idea of what they could do in a given situation. Yes. And in this stage of the project, so much of it has been about building relationships with the young women themselves to draw that information from them. And, uh, Again, really trying to overcome the cultural difficulties of um, their automatic and unearned respect for somebody like me, because um, I'll be like, well, you know, let's really think about what's going to be useful. And they're like, oh, no, no, it's all useful. It's all it's all great. And I'm like, well, no, it's it's really what is going to be the, the, the most useful and uh, what in your experience when women come to you, because they're training hundreds of women, thousands of women even, and, uh, you know, trying to get them to bring what they've learned has been a, a, a challenge. And it's been amazing now that we've started to get sessions where it can be entirely run from their questions. That's fantastic. And where they also start to reflect on their own experience as trainers that's also been really, really good because as we all know, this is you know emotionally challenging work and they kind of want to be, oh no, soldiers, we're resilient, we can keep doing this. And so to have like um, Priyanka telling me that she finds it really hard. Uh, she was dealing with a girl who had been in an arranged marriage and um, she didn't really know the man particularly then uh, like she realized that she'd been kind of con she was you know 18 years old and um as soon as she kind of married him and and moved in with him he wanted her to make bricks and she'd never made bricks she'd never done anything manual like that in her life and so she she protested and he would uh, like uh, beat her up until she would do it and there's just it just went on and on this kind of horrendous situation she'd come out of her family into cut off from everything and she was living with a man that was abusing her physically and uh, causing her to do manual labor around the clock and what priyanka was saying to me was listening to her story made me feel really helpless and because so many women are in that situation and it's just really important for them that they can talk about those experiences because otherwise they're going to burn out because there's so much of that that they're that they're dealing with uh, I, I totally understand that. And I, I've felt similarly working with some of the women who are still in domestic violence situations. Yes. And I guess, you know, the story of the starfish, right? The, the 
Yes, exactly. On the beach with the starfish. I mean, that's the thing that always helps me kind of take a breath. And just also recognizing it, it is a process like you talked about with your own situation. It is a process that takes time. And women who are in those kinds of situations need the support and the help and somebody to talk to so that they can begin that process and have support as they go through it, because it's not an instant overnight fix. Yes. And I think that comes back to what you're talking about in terms of educating young women about these situations, because I think there's a real niche for educating young women how to support each other, because you know, we all know that the standard way that this happens is that the woman who is in an abusive environment will gradually get cut off from everybody and until she finds the strength to leave. But I want to teach young women to be the one who continues to be there for their friend, even when their friend continues to go back to that same relationship. For people to have an understanding of how long it can take and why it can take so long for people to extricate themselves from situations that they believe that they can solve, that they don't, you know, that they have very complex emotions, um, you know, and that understanding how to help somebody and continue to be there for them, um, I think should be an important part of that education and allowing people to talk about it as well. People don't want to talk about abuse um, and it's a very difficult thing to do. It's like talking about grief as well. It makes people feel awkward and they'll shy away from it a lot. So I think being open about it, normalizing the fact that it, it happens and that we need to talk about it will help people in that situation and help women learn to support other women in that situation as well. Yes. Oh, I tell you what, I've got to get you back on the show for another conversation because I have about 10 more questions I want to ask you, but we've already been talking for an hour and a half. <laughs> it's been really good to talk to you. Yeah, I know there's all sorts of stuff I wanted to ask you about and, and, and stuff. So maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe we could do that. Round two for sure. But before we wrap up today, I do want to ask you how you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage. Well, I would say they should definitely take up a martial art that they enjoy because that's a fantastic way to develop power and courage. However, I have a lot of friends that don't want to train in martial arts and don't like martial arts training per se. And so find something that allows you to be in your body, whether it's yoga, whether it's dance, whether it's, I don't know, archery or something that, because doing something physical is doing something mental. And for, for those who really want to find a sense of their own power and identity, then uh, some kind of developmental physical pursuit is one of the most empowering things you can do. Oh, amen to that. I agree. Fantastic. Well, for people who want to learn more about you and about what you're doing, can you share how they can find you out in the social media world and how to contact you? Sure. Yeah. I'm a bit rubbish on Instagram. I do exist there and on Twitter, but Facebook is the easiest way to get hold of me. Um, I can be found as Athena School of Karate uh, or just as Mary Stevens. And uh, my website is athenakarate.com. 
All right. Well, we will have all of those links in the show notes as oh, well. And Fairfight, sorry, obviously as well. If anybody's interested in the work um, that we're doing, then the website is fairfight.nl because it's a Dutch NGO. Um, and we're always looking for, you know, if there's, there's going to be lots of martial arts women uh, that listen to your pod that might, you know, feel that that's something that appeals to them. So um, by all means, I would really welcome people getting in touch about that too. That's really cool because I will tell you five years ago when I first started working with a business coach, uh, she asked us to visualize where we wanted to be. Uh, I think it was 10 years down the road. And one of the things that I said was I wanted to be teaching self-defense to girls in India. Cool. Um, it's been five years. So I still have five years to figure out how to do that. <laughs> um, so I should probably talk with you about that as well. But I do know that there are a lot of martial artists that listen to the program who certainly would want to be supportive, even if they can't travel to India or you know, become, a, become an instructor. And I just, I love the work that that organization is doing. So thank you for sharing that as well. I will include the link to Fair Fight in the show notes. Thank you so much. That's brilliant. Well, Mary, it's been an absolute delight talking with you. And like I said, we're going to do round two because I got so many more things that I want to talk with you about. But thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope you have a brilliant day. (laughs) You too. This has been the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.